Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Thank you very much, everyone, and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as you all know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire people to be philanthropic, to act sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick off, I just want to encourage everybody to subscribe to this podcast, because not only does it make me feel very good if you do, but actually it helps us in the rankings as you search for podcasts in philanthropy. And so helping the rankings is good. It allows us to reach a much broader audience, and consequently, we can spread the word and inspire people across the globe. So that would be really great if you press that subscribe button. I'm going to introduce uh, my friend and former colleague and today's guest, John May, who is the CEO and Secretary General of the Duke of Edinburgh's International Award Foundation. And I should point out that uh, I used to work here a few years ago as Director of Development. So I worked under John. I have learned a lot from John and I consider him a mentor. He is a Gold Award holder, and for those of you who don't know what the Gold Award is, the Duke of Edinburgh's International Award, we'll touch on that a little bit uh, as well. He's a Deputy Lieutenant of Oxfordshire. He's um, formerly the CEO of Career Academies UK, formerly the CEO of Young Enterprise, formerly non-exec director at UNICEF, and very much involved with the Scouts, uh, a lifelong Scout. He is a teacher by profession, became a head teacher at 28, and I think he's still a teacher now. And occasionally when I had some questions regarding grammar, he was the point person, which is really inspiring to know that there was somebody in the office who could tell me whether I'd split an infinitive. So these are some of the little bits about John, but it is a heartfelt welcome to John uh, on our podcast today. And it is delightful to be back in the office of the DOV, the Duke of Edinburgh's International Award. And so John, first of all, Welcome on board to today's podcast. Thanks, Alberto. I, I'm really, really perturbed by hearing that introduction. Uh-huh. Oh, dear. It feels like I've died and you're reading out some kind of awful uh, oration at my funeral. Not at all. So, Duke of Edinburgh's International Award Foundation. Yep. A few things that I remember is that it's, or it was, in 144 countries, that it has over 1 million participants age 14 to 24, young adults, we didn't call them kids, young adults, founded by Israel Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. And really, when I try to describe what it was about, it was about informal education. Those bits that struck a note with me is about what happens in the classroom is only half the story. So there's so much more uh, in terms of developing someone. And when I first joined the organization, I went on one of these royal trips to South Africa and got to see the award in action, both in very elite schools, but also in very disadvantaged parts of South Africa, in Soweto and so forth. And I was really taken aback by how amazing some of these young adults were in terms of their confidence and ability to articulate their feelings. Something that, to be perfectly candid, when I was that age, I would have been completely unable to do. And I uh, allocate a lot of the credit to the Duke of Edinburgh's award. So tell me a little bit about the DOV, um, that's shorthand for the Duke of Edinburgh's Award. And, uh, and what's going on here? Tell me mm. a little bit about the organization. I guess you start from 
from the point of, you, you mentioned it, what goes on in the classroom is only half the story. I guess we have a belief that as a young person, if you're learning to become an adult, of course your academic education is important. And, and whether that's in an elite school or whether it's in a government school or whether, whether you don't go to school at all, um, getting under your belt some real qualifications is, is going to be important wherever in the world you live. But if you don't also at the same time develop the skills and behaviours and attitudes that are needed to be a great citizen, then you're not going to end up being a successful adult. And that, that was really the starting point for the Duke of Edinburgh more than 60 years ago when he created this award scheme. It's simply a way of celebrating young people's achievements outside the classroom. So we invite young people to commit time and talent to four different areas of experience. We want them to give service to their community. We want them to develop uh, uh, stamina and fitness through physical recreation. We want them to find a skill of some kind to develop uh, outside the classroom. That could be anything from learning to play a musical instrument through learning to drive a car, through learning how to keep bees. Uh, it really doesn't matter, um, but it's got to be a young person's own choice. And then we want them to develop their leadership skills through something we call the adventurous journey. And that's giving young people an opportunity with some friends to plan and undertake uh, a, 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 an expedition um, which, if you're 14 years old, is perhaps simply overnight uh, and is just a few kilometres, perhaps in the fields around where you live. And if you're 17 or 18 or 19 years old, going up to the age of 24, uh, that could be um, nearly a week of experience and covering a large amount of ground, sometimes in quite challenging um, uh, terrain. If you do all those things, you end up developing a set of competencies that are eminently transferable into adult life. Resilience, communication skills, uh, the ability to plan, to uh, understand about punctuality, to commit to things and stick to them rather than uh, trying something and immediately giving it, up, giving it up. Those are all things that employers look for. And we celebrate what young people have done in those, uh, in those four different areas, and they must do all four, by awarding um, a little pin badge, bronze, silver or gold, depending on how much time is committed, and the opportunity to put that you have been awarded your Duke of Edinburgh's award on your curriculum vitae or your resume. And that's, that's it. How do I... Well, I'm a little bit older now. You are now. You're too old I'm now. a little bit old. But how would somebody find out about where to do, the, do this program? Is it only available in the UK? Yeah, no. Not? It's, it's not just in the UK. It's in uh, many, many countries around the world. 1.3 million young people participating at the moment, which is pretty extraordinary. That's 300,000 more than I remember. Yeah, well, we're growing. You know, we grow fast. And, and the way young people find out about it is generally because it's being run in their school or their youth group uh, or uh, perhaps their church or synagogue. Uh, it, 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 wherever young people gather, 
uh, there's the opportunity to run the award. And it runs successfully because there are adults who are willing to uh, act as mentors to these young people and help them to make the decisions about the things that they're going to do. Um, generally speaking, it's the adults who create the award structure in the institution where they themselves are volunteering, mm -hmm. or perhaps they're a member of staff, and it's the young people who are then invited to, to take part. So we would encourage people to go and visit our website, www.intward.org, and you can find out then whether the award is run close to you. Um, it's mainly Commonwealth no, countries? No, it's not. I mean, it, it, it is true that in the Commonwealth, it's in virtually every Commonwealth nation, I think, bar one. Uh, I don't think it's in Mozambique yet. But um, uh, our fastest growing parts of the world include the former Soviet Union, particularly uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, we're in the USA. Uh, we have an office in Chicago that runs uh, and is beginning to get the award happening uh, all, all over the USA. We're in most states, but numbers are still pretty small, but you can find out uh, about us uh, through, through the website. Just trying to think where else is surprising. I just had a call last week from Azbekistan saying that, they, to go. that they'd like to run the award. So, so you, you just never okay. know where, 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 where we're going to pop up next. I remember when we were uh, sitting around the senior management team looking at growth for the award and the various countries in which we operated in, just because you have a flag planted in a specific country doesn't mean that it's oranges and oranges. In some countries, you might have a very sophisticated operation with big numbers, other ones entirely in their nascent stages, others which run like clockwork and others which perhaps are a little bit of a challenge. And I'm just curious, on the international growth side, I always used to think if there's value in that interaction between the award and a participant, if there is positive value for that, that young adult, then we should try to spread the word as broadly and widely as possible so that it's in every country and that everybody can benefit from it. How do you go about encouraging international growth without jeopardizing quality while maintaining high standards? And what's their formula? Is, is there a winning formula? I think there is. What we try to do, um, and, and I think we're not alone amongst not-for-profits now around the world that work internationally, is that we try to use the disciplines of social franchise okay. in order to, uh, to grow uh, what we do and to reach as many young people as we possibly can. What we look to do is to license organizations in countries that are able to create a national operation and grow the award to reach I guess to, to have universal access and reach for young people uh, within within that specific nation. You're right. Putting putting a flag into a country makes it great in terms of being able to colour in maps mm -hmm. to show on a website where you have presence. But the truth of the matter is, the award is successful in individual communities. And those communities have to be supported effectively. So what we have are a set of operating um, models that we use through franchise training to equip our franchisees to run this program effectively. And that's, of course, making sure that you've got a really uh, first-class set of experiences for young people being operated, um, and that the, the program, if you like, I mean, 
I think we have 1.3 million different programs because every young person chooses a different way of right. going through the award. But, but the program is sound and solid. But at the same time, I think you've also got to have uh, really solid governance uh, of your organization nationally. Um, and we've spent a lot of time over the last uh, eight to 10 years looking at what good governance in not-for-profits looks like on an international scale. And you've got to have a sustainable uh, business operation. Right. Um, and I think what often happens when you're creating growth is that uh, very well-meaning and very enthusiastic volunteers or members of staff uh, who are, have been doing something at a relatively limited level then want to make what they're doing something of, 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 uh, of, of national importance but they don't plan a business operation that will allow that to move from small scale to major scale. So they will start off, for instance, by, by being able to run their organizations literally in many, many cases on a shoestring mm -hmm. because they're entirely relying on volunteers. They can do their administration uh, on an Excel spreadsheet. They can talk and communicate with their volunteers uh, really effectively because they all live in the same town and they see each other uh, regularly anyway. And then suddenly they discover that in order to run a national operation, you've got to employ staff and you've got to have a communications strategy and you've got to protect your brand um, and you've probably got to develop relationships with um, stakeholders that you would never normally have considered. And all of that becomes too much for them. And then the organization fails. Mm -hmm. So what we now do is when we're looking to grow in a particular country, we start by saying to somebody who's interested in being our franchisee, what do you want the organization to look like in five years' time? Okay, well, then let's plan an infrastructure for your organization that will match your needs in five years' time, not your needs as a startup. And then we can begin to look at how scalability is achieved. And that scalability piece is key, I suppose, if you're looking at the country level. Uh, what sort of tools do you have to build that capacity? So I remember when I was here, there were some really interesting tools, some which were online, some which were about sharing experiences and learning, so manuals that what has worked in one country perhaps could be useful. Well, we have a whole host of different tools. I mean, the, the first is that we have, we have inevitably, we have a franchise manual, but franchise manuals are simply the ways of, of you know, codifying great practice. In order to support learning, um, we will generally uh, provide direct training from our regional offices around the world to individual countries. Uh, we'll look to um, work really closely with a national director once they've been appointed and their board to help them to work out what their governance structures should look like and what their growth plan should look like and so on and so forth. We have uh, relationships with a number of major academic institutions, most notably the University of Surrey uh, here in the UK and um, Heriot Watt University which has a, a strong international presence in both Dubai and Kuala Lumpur. And we offer management training through a certificate of uh, business administration and, uh, and we're just about to launch an MBA. 
Um, really? Which is very exciting. I have no idea. Yeah, really, really exciting stuff. Um, but puts the running of not-for-profits firmly at the center of it rather right. than a normal business administration course, which is perhaps deals in a, in a slightly different, different sector. So there's, if you like, that academic learning that can be available. And of course, we've got folks who've done it. Um, and we have national directors and boards around the world who run successful operations who uh, will provide peer mentoring to our friends and colleagues who are, who are wanting to get set up. Right. Put all that together and you end up with, I think, a pretty solid package. And then what we have in terms of tools for people to use, you know, like every franchise, we have a number of bits and pieces that help to ensure that there's a consistency of approach across the patch. Um, one of the, the most important things for us is that young people have the opportunity to record their achievements uh, and track their achievements. And so we've developed um, what we call our online record book, which is an app that young people have on their smartphone. Mm -hmm. um, and they keep track of, of everything that they're doing. And that links to a, another app that's run by their mentor um, who's able to sign off the activities as appropriate so the young people can track how they're doing towards the achievement of their bronze, their silver or their gold uh, awards. And then in terms of running the organizations, we, uh, we're just about to update our extranet, um, which we've run on open source software for the last uh, eight years. Um, and it has become a little bit clunky. And we're moving to model uh, within the next six to eight weeks, which I think will, will really help all our national operators to be able to get the information and support that they need. I had no idea about the MBA. Yeah. So that's a great way, I suppose, of increasing the caliber of your human capital and making sure that you have really talented people. And there are amazingly talented people in the not-for-profit world around the world. I mean, there really, really are um, uh, extraordinarily talented individuals with great vision, but perhaps have not had the opportunity to step back from their work and think about it um, and compare it with others and learn with their peers. And, and, and I, think, I think the MBA and the Certificate for Business, business Administration that we offer um, uh, really, really help our colleagues to, to get a perspective that ultimately leads to better practice. Is this MBA something that is only available to people from within the Duke of Edinburgh family who are looking to work within the Duke of Edinburgh family? Or, as you mentioned, could it be for someone who is involved in charity well, looking at, to improve their for, skills? For, at, at the moment, we're, we're developing it um, in a very selfish way just for uh -huh. our own folks. Okay. Uh, who knows what might happen in the future right. with it. There are examples within the UK uh, very recently of, um, of business training for the sector as a whole, which we're really excited to see, but really UK-specific. Mm -hmm. I think what makes our stuff perhaps unique is that we are looking at how folks can run national organizations within an international right. organization. Right. Uh, and that's, that's, that's inevitably a little bit different. Organizationally, I know quite a few of our listeners are probably working in organizations that are international or aspiring to be international and grappling with certain dynamics in terms of the head office or the secretariat in city A 
with regional directors, uh, country offices, and that communication, that exchange of information, that rapport. How do you, from an organizational perspective, ensure that things run well, that things run smoothly? What, what's, the, what's the organization look like in terms of regional offices, country offices? Tell us a little bit about that. We have four regional offices around the world. We have one here in London. We have another in Sydney, Australia, which looks after Asia Pacific. One in Nairobi that looks after Africa. And for historical reasons, slightly bizarrely, one in Kingston, Jamaica, that looks after the Americas. Uh -huh. uh, and I really like the idea that we're not in uh, New York or Washington, but that we're in, we're in Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> I think that's quite cool. Those individual national offices are run by the national organizations that are franchised and licensed by this global organization. And the way we move towards quality is really through mutual respect, I think. We use the disciplines of franchise, but we recognize that this is a not-for-profit world and that the motivations for getting involved are very different for different sorts of people. And they generally are not around the, uh, the creation of surplus or profit. And we don't make a charge for the license to any of our national organizations. We may charge for services that we provide, but there's no license charge as such. But what there is, is a very clear set of standards to which our operators must aspire and eventually meet. We have um, an audit and inspection process that's run out of London and our regional offices that spends time with national teams and their stakeholders over a face-to-face -face visit that literally goes down the list of standards and explores how they are being met or what development needs to happen in order to ensure that they're met. Um, and this morning I've been looking at a report that's just about to, to leave this office for one of our major operators in the world where that visit happened just a few weeks ago. They're a, an amazing operator and they're doing some superb work with young people. And nevertheless, there are a number of uh, areas for development that both parties, when they were sitting down during the visit, were able to identify and we're then able to spell out in the form of a formal report mm -hmm. uh, with recommendations. Let me ask you about the governance side. I imagine there are some interesting dynamics in terms of the secretariat versus all the different countries. Everybody has a voice, everybody has a vantage point. How does that work? Because you look like you're remarkably refreshed and composed, but I know that there are some challenges occasionally. And this is not particular only to the DOV. I've heard other organizations that have stakeholders and quote unquote member organizations with voting rights. How do you handle that? It's a really interesting question and different organizations deal with it in different ways. We don't, we don't have members. We have constituents. Our licensees are licensed. We also have, but there are other stakeholders as well who have a, who have a, a literally a stake in what we do. Uh, philanthropists who choose to commit often extraordinary levels of uh, financial resource in order to make the award more accessible, perhaps to young people at from at-risk and marginalized backgrounds. We have governments around the world that have chosen to use the award framework as their basis for, uh, for non-formal education. We have alumni who are exceptionally proud of what they achieved as young people and want to ensure that the next generation 
have the same set of standards that they felt they had to uh, adhere to. So there's a, a good range of folks involved. We've chosen not to go down a democratic model. Um, so we don't have lots of voting going okay. on. Uh, we run a model that is really around consensus. And generally speaking, we don't make changes unless there is consensus from all our stakeholders that change should happen. That is run through a series of conferences that happen every year, regional conferences, and then every three years, uh, a global conference that we call Forum, mm -hmm. where all stakeholders are able to come together or representatives of them are able to come together. And we tease out the problems that people are encountering or the opportunities that they're encountering that perhaps uh, others would be able also to, to learn from. Generally speaking, the approach has become very amicable. Mm -hmm. We moved away from a member-led approach about three years ago towards this much looser memorandum of understanding approach, I guess one would call it, because I think it actually suits the culture of this band of franchisees around the world. You know, in terms of our licensed organizations, they can only have a license if they commit to the standards that we have set. Right. Uh, and those standards are set by the association as a whole, so their peers, but ultimately they're enforced by and agreed by the, but the trustees of the international organization, uh, of which I am the, the, the chief executive and secretary general. That's not a democracy, that's, a, that's an organizational governance decision. And I think recognizing that and recognizing that there was a clear leadership approach being taken by a group of international trustees was one that brought clarity to the conversation rather than frustration. Let me ask you on the technology side now, what are we looking at? Uh, I remember there was an online record book and I yep. think you briefly alluded to it uh, in terms of tracking progress. As I recall, we have information regarding the participants and how they're progressing. We have information regarding all the volunteers and individuals who are helping deliver this program internationally. Then you have to have an idea of the organization itself in terms of the impact that you're making globally and how you're reaching people. Tell us a little about the technology that you're using to make sure that a global organization is thriving and, yep. and robust. And then I'd love to hear a little bit also about technology in terms of the education technology and the innovations and some of the things that might be really exciting coming down the pipeline that are on your radar. Broadly speaking, you're absolutely right. We have, we have the app, uh, the online record book that's available to young people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's sister app that our leaders working directly with young people use to track the young people's uh, progress through their reward program. We then have an extranet that's available to all adults in the award. So that's everything from uh, a leader working directly with young people mm -hmm. through to a national director or a chair of a, the charitable trustees of an individual nation. And that extranet provides information, of course, and a sense of belonging and so on and so forth. But what it also does is it provides the portal to some really quite powerful online digital learning resources. Okay. Most of those geared at the adults who are directly working with young people. We take an approach that is generally around blended learning. 
for adults wanting to work with our participants. So there's an element of learning through the digital portal. I mean, for instance, the basic knowledge of the various rules of of engagement in terms of the handbook for doing the award, you can do digitally. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the nuanced conversations around what makes a great mentor and how do you help young people make decisions for themselves are often decisions that you can't necessarily do on an online basis and you need to have some kind of face-to-face relationship as well. Mm-hmm. So we run training courses, uh, which of course are all booked through and a digital portal and yeah. so on and so forth. The Extranet provides some chat facility as well so that there's an ability for anybody involved within the organisation to be able to talk to each other and to raise issues and to get those issues sorted out. Where we're moving is in a space where the information that's presented to you when you log on is much more targeted than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. So, So in the past, you'd log on as an adult in the award and you'd be faced with the same set of information, whether you were a teacher in a school that's running the award, or whether you were the national director of the award in Canada. And that's quite confusing because Mm -hmm. there's just far, far too much information there. What we've been able to do is to work with a digital provider that, if you like, works out who you are and what sort Mm -hmm. of information is most relevant for you. And you're then presented with that when you log on now. So I think that makes life a little bit easier for everybody. It's been a bit of a learning journey, I suppose, in terms of figuring out what sort of software you need, yeah. how to get it, whether you buy it off the shelf, whether you develop it, and how, who, who's going to be the supplier. And all. Yeah, and I think, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. Now, we, the, the online record book is an entirely bespoke okay. piece of software. The extranet that we use is based on a piece of software that's come off the shelf. So our view with that is that there are plenty of other organizations who have exactly the same business problems as Mm -hmm. we do. It seems really stupid to create a bespoke piece of software that then we have to pay for the constant development and update of uh, alone when it would be much more sensible to be part of a group of customers who are all helping to support the development of the resource over time. Right. Um, and when it comes to basic CRM, which I haven't talked about at all, mm-hmm. um, we're proud customers of Salesforce.com, uh, and we work really closely with Salesforce. This show is not being sponsored by Salesforce. No, and I'm sure I'm sure other other other. But uh, it is a great tool. Yeah. Other tools are available. Uh, but not as good as Salesforce. And I, I remember being here when we were embracing Salesforce for the first time, and it was a little bit of a, a learning curve. But it's a it's a great platform. Yeah, too. and I mean, I think I think what I like about about them is that uh, there are no. I mean, obviously, uh, there are no software uh, companies, so you're able to uh, to use Salesforce whatever kind of uh, operating model you're using. Yeah. Are you using them now? Um, for regional offices and local countries, so as well, a or? number of national, uh, a number of our national, our national organize, uh, organizations have taken advantage of Salesforce.org's uh-huh. uh, amazing offers. I really am not uh, paid by them to say that, <laughs> um, but but there, particularly for some of our smaller national offices, the opportunity to work with free licenses, which are offered through the Salesforce model, is absolutely great. Right. Um, in exactly the same way as they make they make use of Microsoft's amazing offers to not for profits. And do you link up then? The, uh, well, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, point. There's, there are massive issues, of course, to do with the sharing of data. And uh, we always want to be, and must be, but, but also 
I think it's right that we are entirely compliant uh, with um, privacy laws and so on and so forth. So no, our, on many occasions we don't share data because that's right. not appropriate. But putting aside the regulatory concerns, I imagine in an ideal world you'd love to find out how all the different touch points of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the one of the major pieces of work that we're doing as a set of national directors around the world at the moment is looking at the various corporate partnerships that mm -hmm. we all have. I mean, if you're sitting away from our organization, it's kind of a blinding glimpse of the obvious that you would hope that everybody would know, particularly in terms of relationships with multinational corporations, country A would know what country B and country C were doing in terms of their relationships with the same company. Yes. Hey, it's not as simple as that. Right, right. right. Uh, and we're now moving to a point where we have much better understanding of the various relationships that, that individual country offices have with multinationals. And often, we're able to tell those multinationals what they're doing mm -hmm. more efficiently than they can find out that information for themselves. Which is I quite see. cool. So if you were meeting the CEO of a, of a blue chip company, yep. our organization or the DOV conceivably might have existing Absolutely. contacts at the local, regional, national. That's right. Global. And we can. We, and they may not know about and it. And they may well not know about it. And we can collect that, that intelligence together and present it to them. Right. And that's quite cool. That is. Particularly since the employability piece is one of those things that you're. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you talk to an employer, about what they want from first jobbers. Mm -hmm. what of do course, they, they, what want, do they, want? they want technical competence, yeah. but most of all, they want somebody who is ready to enter the job market and understand what being employed is all about. So they want the same sorts of things that young people develop through their engagement with the award. They want, they want young people who can communicate with each other, who have empathy, who understand the importance of, as I've mentioned earlier, sticking with something and mm -hmm. not giving up at the first hurdle. Grit. Uh, grit, resilience, call it what you will. Mm -hmm. They want somebody who is able to operate comfortably intergenerationally. And when you think about it, we spend the whole of a young person's education putting them only in contact for most of the day with people of the same age mm -hmm. as themselves. And then they come into the workplace and they're expected to operate comfortably with somebody who may be the same age as their parent, and they've had no experience of doing that. Well, the award through the volunteering that young people do often does bring them into uh, relationships with uh, a wide range of ages. And so I think that really, really helps. What is going on with the employability piece? What's going on with employability? Why is it such a hot topic and why does it matter? If when somebody comes into the workplace, you have to start from scratch in helping them to be effective employees, then you're wasting the resource of the organization or you're having to commit the resource of the organization to something that could be done before a young person joins the workplace. Mm. So I, I guess that is there is there a problem? I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you that there's quite a few people I meet who may have a high school degree but if you put them in a job interview, would not be able to drive that forward in any in any successful way possible. Yeah, I I, I think that's always been the case. Okay. So so I don't think I don't think the employability um, the employability challenge is any greater now than 
it has ever been. I think there is more of a recognition that there are experiences that young people can have outside the classroom that help to develop a wider and more holistic range of skills and behaviours and attitudes uh, than that which is simply undertaken within the classroom. And we, along with a whole load of other organisations, and that could be sports organisations, it can be um, it can be the, the scouts and the guides or cadet organisations or youth clubs. I mean, the range can be very, or faith organisations can be very, very wide. But there is, I think, a growing respect for non-formal education mm-hmm. opportunities for young people in helping them to become great citizens. Right. Um, one of the reasons we're growing so fast in Eastern Europe is because there's been considerable commitment since the fall of the Soviet Union to the formal education of young people, sometimes uh, to the neglect of the wider education of young people. And so often policymakers in those nations are approaching me and others like me to say, can you help us to, to, if you like, put back in place a framework for a wider and more holistic education for young people. Mm -hmm. In newly developed nations, uh, what you're seeing is immense commitment over the last 20 to 30 years in academic education. Uh, Young people are leaving school more literate and more numerate uh, in many countries than they have ever been before. And yet, they are lacking the ability to be able to communicate effectively, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there you have... You then have policymakers saying, well, hang on, we need to commit time then to youth and young people's development as well as the formal education system. And where I think the employability debate is perhaps focusing that is that as um, employers are looking to diversify their employee base, they are having to look towards young people from backgrounds who have not necessarily had the opportunity that other young people get automatically to take part in sport, to give service to the community, to do extracurricular activities. So you've got to put that in place. An inclusivity piece. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if, if one's going to be... If, if I look at a UK situation, mm-hmm. what we do with... The award, in terms of the activities of it, are those that schools that have seen holistic education as important have done for uh, more than a century. Um, now, whether those are the independent schools or whether they're, uh, they're government schools with a strong background in, in extracurricular activity... Uh, I, I, I really don't mind, but they tended, they have tended to have been available to only a small portion of the population. And I think what we would say is that the framework of opportunity of being able to learn through doing things outside the classroom should be available to every young person. And what's a joy is that certainly in the UK, over the last 10 to 15 years, virtually every school in the UK has some kind of engagement with the Duke of Edinburgh's award. That's a pretty impressive shift, I think, Mm -hmm. from when perhaps some people 
might have perceived our work only to have been something that would have been undertaken in independent schools or grammar schools or yeah. whatever you choose to, to call them or 20, 30, private schools 20 30 yeah. years ago. And indeed, correctional facilities as well. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, we, we believe that wherever young people come together, for whatever reason, they should have the opportunity to do the award. And you're absolutely right in highlighting that some of our biggest successes over the last few years have been in facilities where uh, young people have the least opportunity to undertake those sorts of activity, particularly correctional centres and juvenile detention centres. In South Africa, our work with, with the correction services has been, I think, genuinely life-changing for young people. I was listening this morning to a report from New Zealand uh, on New Zealand radio of young people in the correction centres in Christchurch receiving their bronze, silver and gold awards. Really? And these young people being interviewed and saying that this was the first time in their lives that they had felt in control of choice as to what they were going to do and that they were developing skills and behaviours and attitudes that would lift them from crime. That's pretty cool. That is excellent. That is excellent. So how did you get into all of this? So you're a teacher by profession, mm. head teacher at 28. Mm. If I look at you today, I wouldn't think that that's necessarily the case other than your exceptional ability to pick out spelling mistakes. <laughs> um, what was that journey? And I'm asking because I imagine other people listening to this, perhaps in the earlier phases of their career, uh, who are benevolent and altruistic and really interested in making a difference, may want to learn a thing or two from you. I, there's, no, there's no career plan, Alberto. That's the, I'm afraid. I know. I'm often asked if, if I can provide advice to, um, to, to young people who are entering the workplace for the first time or are, you know, thinking about their career choices. And truthfully, I've never really made any plans. I, I went to university believing that I was going to become an actor. Okay. I discovered pretty quickly that I couldn't act which is kind of a major issue. Um, and I was doing my Duke of Edinburgh's award at the time and for my service to the community, my voluntary service, I chose almost by accident to, um, to go and run a Cub Scout pack uh -huh. uh, and discovered that I love working with young people. My parents and others said, well, why don't you train to be a teacher? Because even if you can't act, maybe you want to get involved in educational TV or something like that. Uh, so it would be good to have that qualification under your belt. So I did and then got a job teaching in a school in the Midlands of the United Kingdom mm -hmm. in Litchfield and then discovered I loved it. Loved working with young people, loved watching young people discover uh, their own abilities and their own potential and yeah things just happened you know At but yet you're running a foundation you're you're running a, an international organization so you're not at a school right now no but i am an you but you're right you know you introduced me as a teacher and the truth of the matter is once a teacher always a teacher I think. right and i guess i've had the privilege of being able to shift from the school sector into a wider educational sector I became a head teacher quite early. I worked in a couple of schools that needed needed to develop and uh, worked with a team of teachers and other support staff to 
make those schools better than they had been when I turned up. Got to a point when um, we, in the UK we have a thing called Ofsted and uh, I was inspected by our the quality, uh, quality, by standards. Our quality standards yeah. people, Ofsted, the Office for Standards and Education, and a school that had been failing was then described as a very good one, which is lovely. Uh, my own management was, uh, was praised, which was super. I went into a meeting with my director of education because at that time we had local education authorities that uh, very much looked after their, their individual schools in local government. And uh, David said to me, well, you know, normally we'd say, would you like to come and join the, uh, the local authority as, a, as an inspector? But frankly, I don't think you'd enjoy it and I don't think we'd enjoy working with you. Uh, <laughs> you're too much of a maverick. <laughs> um, uh, and then a fortnight later phoned me up again and said, uh, look, you know, there's a job advertised that looks like it's got your name all over it. Mm -hmm. And that was with uh, an organisation called Business in the Community, who uh, are a charity uh, with the Prince of Wales as their patron, but working in the area of corporate responsibility and responsible business practice, and now uh, much more into the sustainability agenda. And I became their director of education and eventually their director of community campaigning. And that I, I, you know, I was I was I was lucky in that there was a chief executive there, an extraordinary person called uh, Julia Cleverden, now Dame Julia Cleverden, um, who saw the skills that I developed as a head teacher and felt that they were transferable to the not-for-profit sector, um, and she gave me that opportunity and that chance. And all the time, as far as I'm concerned, my development as an educator and as a leader has been down to two things. The, the first would be another individual who has been kind enough to recognize uh, in me some kind of quality that they felt could be developed. Mm -hmm. And my willingness to um, carpe diem, seize the day, yes. and make the leap that was being offered to me. And I think you put both of those together and you end up with the opportunities that, that one can then take advantage of. Unfortunately, too many people, I think, plan their lives too carefully and miss the opportunities that are put out in front of them because they don't quite fit the direction that they think that they have uh, positioned themselves for. Right. Remember that song, Wear Sunscreen or something along those lines? Yeah, you and I have shared that before. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Or, you know, some interesting people I know don't know what they want to do at 20, and some of the most interesting people I know don't know what they want to do at age 40 or something. Yeah. yeah. So a healthy, healthy appreciation that risk is not an enemy, just calculated and, and seize the opportunity if it presents itself, if it, if it aligns with you. Yeah, seize the opportunity, recognize that you have to manage risk. Now, that was going to be, maybe that is the answer to my next question. But as you know, here at the podcast, it's, it's very much about encouraging people to be more philanthropic, act sustainably, and embrace social entrepreneurship. And I always like to ask, as we're wrapping up, I like to ask my guests, if our global listeners remember nothing at all except for one salient point or bit of wisdom, what is that key takeaway that you would like people to, to remember about today's podcast? And perhaps you've just said it, but perhaps you haven't. So what is that key takeaway that you think, if nothing else, just remember this one bit? Oh, it's do the right thing. And that's, that sounds terribly uh, simple and, um, and perhaps a little bit childish. But in everything that I do and in every decision that I am asked to make, I ask myself the question, what is the right thing to do? And, right. the, and the word right is about business risk, 
but it's also about values. Mm-hmm. And for me, the two are inseparable. I, 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 think, I think if one looks at the decisions that are made by some business leaders that perhaps only look at the bottom line, they eventually bite them because they've done the wrong thing. Equally, those who only live by their values without thinking about how their values can be turned into practical application, which I would describe as taking business risks, Mm -hmm. will live in a world where nothing necessarily happens. I'm often asked by young people for, for a bit of advice. I say, well, believe in yourself, believe in your ideas, believe in the ideas of others and the power of teams, but most of all, get off your backside and do something. And um, yeah, so do the right thing is, is what I would the say. The key takeaway from yeah. Mr. May. Very good. So I know you're very busy and we're wrapping things up. If somebody, wherever they might be, is listening to this podcast and thinks, well, yeah, but I'd like to continue that conversation. I do have a follow-up question. There is a comment I'd like to send in. What's the best way for somebody to get a hold of you? Is it through Twitter, LinkedIn, email? What do you recommend? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm a, I'm a bit of a social media junkie, accepting that I probably operate in social media that's about three or four years out of date. So uh-huh. I'm, still, I'm still Facebook mad, whereas I think most young people probably have moved on from that. Right. Um, but you can find me always on, on social media platforms by searching for John C.C. May, J-O-H-N. C-C-M-A-Y. Uh, and um, I'm normally pretty good at responding. You are. I can vouch for that. And so just to let listeners know, we will have episode notes on the website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. We'll cover uh, the salient points that we discovered today. I'm going to make an effort to put some links to some of the uh, bits that we've referenced here so that it makes it easier for everybody to understand uh, how, to, how to get a hold of that information. I will put some links to John's numerous social media accounts as well, so you can reach him that way. And he is very good at responding. And again, before we wrap up, please do subscribe to this podcast. It uh, it makes a big difference for us in terms of reaching out to a much broader audience. So thank you so very much, John, for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. I know it would. It's a delight. Thank you. And it's great to see you again. It's always good to see you. And I'm, I'm still learning from you. And um, You're very kind out there. Yeah, but it's, it's true. So thank you very much, and thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.